0: Hi, this is Jessie and you're listening to Clinical Pearls. Once considered taboo, anal sex has slowly been slipping into the mainstream. More women might be open to anal intercourse than you might think, and this is according to a study from Indiana University's Kinsey Institute for Research in Sex, Gender, and Reproduction. After researchers surveyed more than 2,000 men and women about their sexual behaviors, they found that nearly 43% of men and 37% of women reported having anal sex with the opposite sex in their lifetime. This finding is actually consistent with a recent report from the CDC, which found nearly the exact same percentages for both men and women. So this is the focus of our podcast, as both the CDC and ACOG call for screening of urogenital gonorrhea and chlamydia. If that is the only anatomical site assessed, we may be missing potential reservoirs for continued infection. That includes the anal area and the oropharynx. Is this really an issue? Well, let's take a look at the data and find out. According to the National Survey of Family Growth, the percentage of participants reporting heterosexual anal sex increases with age, with two high-prevalence age groups. The first is between 20 and 24-year-olds, and then it peaks among 30 to 34-year-olds. However, gaps in STI screening for non-genital sites may be leading to missed opportunities to treat STIs, which may lead to further transmission. Again, this is the focus of our podcast. According to the CDC's report on sexually transmitted infection surveillance, the rate of STIs is steadily increasing, with an estimated 1.7 million cases of chlamydia and more than 500,000 cases of gonorrhea in the U.S. alone. Both infections can be contracted through vaginal, anal, or oral intercourse typically, both infections can be easily treated, but if left untreated, both infections can cause serious complications for patients, including infertility. The CDC currently recommends that all sexually active women less than 25 years of age, as well as other women who have specific risk factors, be tested annually for urogenital chlamydia and gonorrhea infection. Per the guidelines, the clinical significance of pharyngeal chlamydial infection is unclear and routine pharyngeal screening for chlamydia is actually not recommended. Neisseria gonorrhea and C. trachomatis can also be detected in the rectum as well as the pharynx. Gonorrhea and chlamydial infection in the rectum can cause rectal pain, bleeding and rectal discharge, and in men can cause proctitis. Now, in the pharynx, these infections can cause symptoms like pharyngitis and lymphadenitis. But, just as with pelvic infections, most are asymptomatic. Given that extragenital testing is not always part of routine STD screening, particularly in the absence of symptoms, many extragenital infections are being undiagnosed and untreated. This has raised the voice of certain experts in the field to push for universal screening of other sites outside of the vaginal tract. These untreated extragenital infections are a potential reservoir for ongoing transmission and may also lead to increased risk of HIV acquisition extra genital testing for Neisseria gonorrhea and C. trachomatis is an emerging area that should be considered in both men and women. Now, as part of true disclosure, we didn't have a way to test for non-genital gonorrhea and chlamydia before May of 2019. In May of 2019, the U.S. FDA cleared for marketing two tests that can detect the presence of bacterial chlamydial trichomatis and Neisseria gonorrhea through diagnostic testing of extra genital specimens. Previously, there was no gonorrhea or chlamydia test cleared for use on samples from the throat or the rectum, and although nucleic acid amplification tests that were used for the vaginal or cervical swabs could be used on areas like the pharynx or the rectum, it was not clear if they possessed the same sensitivity since they weren't cleared for use at those locations. However, since May of 2019, testing for extragenital chlamydia and gonorrhea is now possible. Self-collected swabs are a means of collecting pharyngeal and rectal specimens by the patient themselves, is possible, and it is supported by the CDC guidelines and has been found to be an acceptable means of obtaining specimens among patients. According to a recently published data, a total of 33 studies have reported prevalence of extragenital infection in women due to Neisseria gonorrhea or Chlamydia trachomatis infection. The range of prevalence of extragenital infection has been anywhere from 0.6 up to 36% for rectal gonorrhea based on population studied and it has been from less than 1% to close to 30% for pharyngeal gonorrhea based on the specific population. Similarly, rates between 2% to 77% of rectal chlamydial infections have been reported, and rates of 02 to 3% for pharyngeal chlamydia. Again, these rates vary because of the different populations studied. Most study sites were STD clinics and other high-risk settings that contributed to this data pool. Few were primary care settings, and the rest were clinics focusing specifically on women's healthcare. All right, when we come back, let's take a look at some published data by Brown University calling these extra genital infections to focus. According to data published by Brown University, Most extra genital infections in women are asymptomatic, with estimates ranging from 93% of pharyngeal gonorrhea being asymptomatic to 53 to 100% of cases of rectal gonorrhea. Again, those are clinical pearls. If you're waiting for patients to present with symptoms, we're gonna miss a large majority of those to almost all of them. Again, the percentage of women that were asymptomatic were 93% for pharyngeal gonorrhea and 53 up to 100% of rectal gonorrhea. What about chlamydia? According to the data from Brown University, 100% of pharyngeal chlamydia cases were asymptomatic and between 36 to 100% of rectal chlamydia also were asymptomatic. Furthermore, a significant number of women who tested positive for rectal gonorrhea or chlamydia actually did not report having oral or anal sex, so leaving screening at those anatomical sites based on self-reported sexual activity again may miss a significant number of infections. It's suspected that patients may not be forthcoming with reporting anal intercourse for a variety of reasons, including perceived social taboos. Extragenital screening has the ability to increase the yield of detection of either gonorrhea or chlamydia at pharyngeal or rectal sites by about 6-50% to 50% greater than those that don't have screening at those locations. All right, well, what are we supposed to do with this information? Are we supposed to collect rectal and oropharyngeal swabs in addition to urogenital screening for women that are getting checked for STIs? Well, the answer to that depends on who you ask. One camp states that we should follow the CDC current recommendations, which are to focus on the urogenital tract with at least annual screening in sexually active women that are age 25 and under. However, the other camp states that that is just not enough to identify all cases of gonorrhea and chlamydia. According to the Brown University researchers, based on prevalence data, universal screening for extragenital infection due to Neisseria and Chlamydia trachomatis in settings which care for women or who those who are at risk for infection should be considered due to the frequency of asymptomatic extragenital infection and the inaccuracy of testing based on self-reported behavior. The evidence does support routine screening, especially in high-risk settings like STD clinics. So, not only do the Brown researchers, but a larger group of gynecologists also agree that universal screening for extragenital infection will certainly increase case finding, which in turn will lead to both clinical and public health benefits like avoiding reproductive health sequelae as well as limiting potential HIV transmission. However, even the researchers do acknowledge that extra genital screening protocols among sexually active women are not currently widespread, and until it's incorporated into the masses, Further study may still be needed to evaluate the impact on sexual health outcomes. Well, we got one section left, and that's treatment. Once we find extra genital infection, does it follow the same treatment guidelines? Let's do that next as we wrap up the podcast. Current U.S. guidelines regarding treatment of extragenital infections due to Neisseria gonorrhoeae and Chlamydia trachomatis are similar to those for the treatment of urogenital infections. Treatment guidelines from the U.S., U.K., and Europe both recommend similar regimens for both urogenital and extragenital infections. But there is a catch, and here are some clinical pearls. Let's take a look at Chlamydia first. The efficacy of chlamydia treatments may differ for extragenital infections at rectal and pharyngeal sites. Doxycycline may have slightly greater efficacy compared to azithromycin for both rectal and pharyngeal chlamydial infection. And this is because single-dose azithromycin may not lead to sustained drug concentrations capable of curing extragenital infection at those sites. So once again, although both doxycycline and azithromycin are labeled as appropriate choices for chlamydial infection, doxycycline may have slightly greater efficacy compared to azithromycin at both rectal and pharyngeal sites. Now, remember, though, no randomized control trials have actually evaluated treatment regimens for extragenital chlamydial infection. And further studies are still needed to determine what the optimal management of these infections actually is. Now, regarding gonorrhea. The current treatment recommendations for urogenital Neisseria involve dual regimens of ceftriaxone 250 mg as a single dose in addition to azithromycin 1000 mg orally in a single dose. Uncomplicated rectal infections with Neisseria gonorrhea should be treated in the exact same manner. Given that both ceftriaxone and azithromycin are administered as a single dose, these drugs should be administered together and under direct observation. Pharyngeal infections with Neisseria gonorrhea are more difficult to treat and have demonstrated ceftriaxone resistance and treatment failure in a number of countries outside of the U.S. In both pharyngeal and rectal gonorrhea, Persistence of the organism after treatment may be due to reinfection, but it can also reflect an elevated MIC needed for these antibiotic regimens. At this time, guidelines still recommend treating pharyngeal infection by Neisseria gonorrhoeae with ceftriaxone and azithromycin. The addition of azithromycin may improve treatment efficacy for these pharyngeal infections. Lastly, After treatment, in general, a test of cure is not recommended, except in cases where there are persistent symptoms or therapy was not completed, or if reinfection is suspected. Retesting for both urogenital and extragenital infections less than three weeks after treatment is definitely not recommended because it can result in false positive results due to high sensitivity nature of these nucleic acid amplification tests and the possibility that they are detecting non-viable organisms. Alright, as we wrap up the podcast, a quick reminder. The CDC reports that in addition to the same sexually transmitted infections that are transmissible by vaginal sex like gonorrhea and chlamydia, anal sex can also expose participants to hepatitis A, B, and C. It can also expose participants to parasites like Giardia and intestinal amoebas, bacteria like Shigella, Salmonella, and even Campylobacter and of course E. coli. So as a good reminder to not only ask patients if they're having anal intercourse, but also to provide education that anal intercourse should occur with lubrication and ideally with condom use to prevent the transmission of bacterial infections as well as viral infections. And, while intuitive to healthcare providers, some younger patients may not realize the potential vaginal health implications if they receive vaginal penetration immediately after receptive anal penetration by their partner or a self-inserted device. Well, That wraps up our episode on extra genital STIs with a focus on anal and oropharyngeal infection. Thanks for being a part of the Clinical Pearls family. We'll see you next time on Clinical Pearls.